Welcome to another episode of the Destination Linux Podcast. Welcome to episode 86 of Destination Linux. Destination Linux is the podcast that talks about Linux, Linux news, interviews, all kinds of things. If you're interested in that, be sure to subscribe. And I'm your host this week, Michael, the Sultan of Said, the Guru of Sudo. And with me is... <laughs> with what me, just happened? With me is the elite geek that is always on fleek, Mr. Das Geek himself, Ryan. How are you doing, Ryan? Wow, what an intro. I mean... How do, wow, I, I just can't. Right? I'm too excited to even think about your intro, honestly, because finally my dream has come true. We're going to do an entire episode on Fedora, finally, uh, here. And to prepare this week, you guys know I got the new Dell XPS that I love. Mm -hmm. So I upgraded the NVMe drive in it. I ripped out the 128 gigabytes because who can run anything on that, right? right? And put the 512 gigabyte NVMe in and installed Fedora 28, and I'm happy to report it runs beautifully. So there you go. Very cool. So also with us this week is the boss with the secret sauce of distro hops, Mr. Zeb. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Only I'm not going to talk about distro hopping this week. I'm going to send it right back to Ryan, because as some of you, of you know, we have this little Raspberry Pi thing that I started. You mean that thing I won? Yeah. Well, the thing that you thought you'd won, what? I'm taking your 5,900 and raising you to 13,145. <laughs> Only it won't unzip, so I've got to spend another four days downloading it again. <laughs> but see, there, there's something behind this story. So what we're talking about is the ROMs that we've downloaded for our RetroPie, right? And you made a challenge to me because you got like some, oh, I got 5,000 and I raised you 6,000 and some to show you up. And then I was watching your live stream today. And no, 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 that's false. The fake something news. happened. Somebody was saying they were helping you get wrong. You're cheating. That's what's <laughs> happening. You cheated. So technically, I feel like I won and you deserve to send me a retro pie award. <clears throat> I used community spirit for what it's there for <laughs> exactly ask the community yeah crowdsourcing is what it's for mm -hmm. ridiculous <laughs> well i refuse to say you won but more importantly we need to get back to the topic at hand here which yeah. is fedora absolutely so joining us this week is an interview with matthew miller of fedora uh, welcome to the show matthew hi thanks i'm glad to be here so if you're not aware matthew miller is the Fedora project leader, and has been involved has been an employee of Red Hat for since 2012. Correct? Yeah. Wow. That's almost six years now. So it's yeah, nice. gone fast. So looking at like researching like your history, I found out you did a the BU Linux distribution for Boston University. Yeah, um, that was wow. That's like uh, around two around 2000 or so. I think I started that. So that's yeah. like two decades ago now. Right, that's that's really cool. And you're also the the you have been the leader of the Fedora Next initiative. Yeah, so um, that was basically when I actually before I started as project leader, um, 
it wasn't just me, uh, Stephen Gallagher, who's involved in Fedora leadership and a bunch, bunch of other people were kind of, uh, Fedora had just been around for 10 years at that point. Mm-hmm. And although uh, it was, the community was pretty healthy and things were doing, the distro was doing well, um, it was kind of doing the same things that it had been doing for the last 10 years and kind of going kind of in a cycle of this is what we do. We'll just keep doing those things. Yeah. And it seemed like it was time to sort of step back a little bit and make some strategic plans for how we are going to tackle the next decade of Fedora. So um, So that's kind of what Fedora next idea was. Nice. So reassess the distro itself. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so, well, you said so. You've been around in the Linux world for quite a while, and I just am just curious, what drew you into Linux, and what was your first distro actually, too? Yeah. Um, well, let's see, um, I, I learned um, about open source from some friends of my parents when I was in high school, and I had wanted a compiler, and they were very expensive, and uh, I showed up with a stack of floppy disks that had um, the DJ CCP or. C- the DOS port of GCC on it, which was awesome. Nice. Um, and it, it kind of blew my mind that something this powerful and normally that expensive was being you know, shared just for um, people to take and share with other people. And it wasn't like piracy. It was like, that's what it was made for doing. So that kind of got me intrigued by it, but I didn't really get into, uh, into Linux until uh, my friend, Paul Stoffer graduated from college and he in rural Indiana basically discovered that having graduated from college in the 90s, he no longer had email because there were not like ISPs everywhere and certainly wasn't like consistent broadband like there is. So he convinced his dad that starting up an ISP would be a good idea. And then they hired him. To help with that, yeah, it was it was Wild West times there. So <laughs> I, I helped start at ISP, and it was originally um, all based on Windows NT four, um, but we had one machine that kept crashing all the time, and we finally were like, well, I'm tired of this Windows stuff, um, and I ordered one of those five distro sets from a magazine. I forget the brand name of it, but it had. Um, Slackware and Debian and Red Hat Linux, and I don't remember the other ones, um, but I didn't really know. So I just picked the first one on the stack. That was Red Hat Linux. It didn't boot, so I threw it away. (laughs) Next one was Slackware. That one did boot, and so um, we used Slackware for a while, and we eventually converted everything over to Linux because it became obvious pretty quickly that that was definitely the way to go for, you know, internet services. Nice. Um, so that kind of learned by doing there and um, kept with Slackware for a couple years until they got tired of not being able to upgrade. I think that was kind of the killer feature of Red Hat Linux at the time was you could go from one release to the next, which we kind of take for granted now. But <laughs> with Slackware, it was basically you didn't install and then you were stuck with that and yeah. you couldn't even really upgrade software. There weren't security patches or it was all do it yourself. So. You know, there were a couple of things in that statement that I found interesting. So I'm one of the youngest in Linux here. I've only been in Linux for two years and made most of my living off of Windows up to this point. But that that moment when you said you can't believe they're providing this for free when you're talking about the compiler uh, and the, the advancedness of the software for free, that was something that struck me when I was trying Linux for the first time and trying programs out there. First of all, the operating system itself, but also things like Kden Live and others. When I was playing with them, I'm like nobody's, I'm not paying for this. It's not $60, $80. It's not $250 for a video editor. It's not, 
you know, $150 for uh, a program to mess with photos. This is free. That was, it was almost shocking. Like you didn't think it, this really is going to be any good automatically mm-hmm. because I was so used to paying for everything that it really threw me. Yeah. And really, you know, the importance isn't free as in you know cost, the free as right. in beer thing isn't really the importance, but I think we shouldn't discount it for a lot of things like just the access that it, oh, yeah. that it gives me you know, as a kid who couldn't afford this stuff, you know, as a family that wasn't well off, that was, uh, that was amazing. And there's people all over the world who have access to software through Linux um, and through open source that they couldn't otherwise. So um, that is really cool. I mean, it builds a whole bridge. There are people of all different income levels and things. I know we're focusing on the free, free part, but that is a part that happens with open source is it builds that bridge where everybody can have an opportunity at least to participate at the same level as somebody who, say, has pockets full of cash and no worries about that type of stuff, which I think is a neat bridge uh, to build there for anybody, any country, any income level can get involved in these things, much like it happened with you. So yeah, great. even like the five dollar thing. If like someone just said five dollars is is basically like almost nothing, but if you look at it, someone in a different country who's the the currency trends, like the exchange could be like a lot more for them. And then mm-hmm. this way, get the, and they could be like a you know a teenager who doesn't have a job to get access to this stuff, and they can easily get access to it. So it's more while it is the the free as in cost is nice. But it also is the the free access to it is just is the, is one of the most amazing things about it. Yeah, definitely an added thing. So on your website, you describe yourself, and my favorite word you used here is geek. Obviously, that's my favorite word. Uh, as a geek, a random hacker, an icebreaker addict, an amateur <laughs> photographer, and creator of the Pentax PTTL flash guide. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that that flash guide is a little out of date. Uh, I I um, enjoy photography. Um, and I uh, do a lot of it. And then when I was researching a flash for my Pentax camera, I uh, made this whole guide for my own nerdy research. And I was like, hey, I should put this online. And then it kind of got out of control. It's out <laughs> of date now, though. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can give you uh, camera flash advice, but that's probably for different <laughs> podcasts. We have a lot of photographers in our Telegram group. Uh, in fact, some of our patrons as well that join us are photographers as well professionally. And so I'm sure they're going to be interested in that. But the one thing that really got my attention was the random hacking you do. So I want you to admit right now, what kind of hacker are you? Uh, uh, gray hat. Right? Um, gray hat. Okay. Yeah. No, um, you know, um, back in the BBS days, I, I, I was more excited about the, about the scene kind of hacking. But no, um, really what that means is I've been a sysadmin for most of my life before this job. And as a sysadmin, there's a lot of, you know, I, I don't consider myself a coder, but there's a lot, I've done a lot of programming and there's a lot of, um, you know, bits and pieces you put together. So that's the random hacking stuff yeah. I'm interested in that I poked at and made happen and um, half, half made and that kind of thing. Awesome. Well, that's interesting. You say you're you're not a programmer, um, and yet you created your own BU Linux back in 1999. So what's the story behind that, and what was it used for? Yeah, so, um, that, well, yeah, that's one of, let me focus on the not a programmer thing first, which is like, that's one of the, the um, things that we get often in Fedora. I'm not a developer. I'm not a programmer. I, I'm not how could I help? What, what could I do for Fedora? That wouldn't be very useful. Or actually, conversely, I'm a programmer. I want to pro- I want to help Fedora. And then 
we don't necessarily have something for you to do because a project like Fedora is, I mean, there is some programming involved, but most of the, the actual software writing happens upstream or in our infrastructure, but the distribution itself has very little unique code written for it. We, mm -hmm. uh, so um, there are a lot of jobs other than programmer that are important. Um, so BU Linux happened because uh, yeah, I was working uh, for Boston University at, in the IT department there. And basically, uh, you know, people, in, Linux was on the rise and people all over the university were, in, were installing it in, you know, uh, their classrooms or in labs, um, in, in departments, under professors' desks, in research things. And then uh, someone did a study around that time, and I don't remember all the results, but um, Red Hat Linux, this is before RHEL, so Red Hat Linux was the one that like won the crown of most secure because it was 15 minutes before somebody had broken into its system that they just put wow. out of the box. So, so Linux, like, there just wasn't this security mindset. And it wasn't just like, it wasn't just Linux, like uh, SGI machines came with, you know, printer account with no password and those kind of like, it was, <laughs> it was like people, computers weren't ready for the internet basically. Um, so our security people were basically going around telling people, stop it, you can't run Linux, it's not safe on our network. And so I came up with this idea that, hey, what if we take, this is open source, what if we take a distribution and modify it, harden it so that it um, does work on our networks, that it is secure, gets automatic updates, um, ties into our Kerberos login system, and a couple of those other things. Mm -hmm. um, so I put forth that proposal, and um, the head of – it was approved by the by IT, um, so I went, went and did it. So we took um, nice. Red Hat Linux and basically made a derivative distribution of that that was tailored for better security and for the university needs. Very cool. So that kind of brings up another question since you've, you've been in the development of creating your own distro for the Boston University, but also you're you know, working with Fedora and creating Fedora. What kind of, what is like the biggest challenges that you see as a, as a distro creator? Um, that's a very broad question. So I think, I think <laughs> the biggest challenge right now is that although we're on a Linux podcast here, uh, I think, general enthusiasm for operating systems in and of themselves is much lower than it ever has been because right. that's, it's kind of uh, distributions have solved a lot of problems and the interest has moved up the stack. So if I go to a conference that is not a Linux centric conference, a developer conference or a DevOps or uh, mm -hmm. whatever, um, people generally don't care about the operating system. Like it, it's not important to them at all. Um, which is fine. I mean, from, from their point of view, they shouldn't have to. It means we've done a great job. We've, we've kind of solved that. But it also means that it's hard to get interest you know, in the press. It's hard to get uh, new contributors in who are feeling like, oh, yeah, this is something I can make a name for myself working on analytics distribution is uh, it's generally not what you hear. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some exceptions. You know, I think um, CoreOS is a um, cool innovation in operating systems that came up recently um, that sort of shook things up a little bit. Um, and I'm really happy that that's now a part of Fedora. So I think that's a good, good opportunity for Fedora. Um, but I think, yeah, in, in general, that challenge where there are kind of higher level problems to solve is, is a, is a um, challenge for Linux distributions. 
Very interesting. So we talked about the Boston University. You also attended Harvard School of Engineering uh, and Applied Science. L- let me correct you there. I, okay. I worked there, but I've never attended. Okay, I've never gotcha. attended either BU or Harvard. So I don't want my don't want to get um, false so you, things creeping out of my resume here. <laughs> gotcha. Well, we were adding it there. So you're going to get yeah. lots of people calling you for uh, job interviews now. Uh, but no. So you worked with both of those. And curious with Harvard School of Engineering, in applied science, was there a heavy Linux presence there as there was with Boston University, where you saw this huge kind of influx coming in? Yeah, so I mean that was that was much later, and I kind of moved on because that that problem that BU Linux solved was kind of when RHEL came along and enterprise distributions, you know, and people got realistic about security and all these same problems. Like there really wasn't an important need for BU Linux anymore, so it was kind of time for me to find something else to do. So um, I worked in the academic computing department there, uh, kind of helping instruction and research labs with their computing resources. And yeah, so um, all of the server stuff is was all, all Linux. Um, and then on the desktop, I'd say it's probably a third Mac, a third Windows, a third Linux for um, students there, students and faculty. Um, and yeah. So yeah, pretty pretty good Linux presence. Nice. Yeah. Can't be bad. Um, so we've talked about some of the things that you've done in the past. So let's talk about your uh, current role, because, I mean, project lead, project leader can mean all sorts of things in different industries. So what are your responsibilities as the Fedora project lead? Uh, yeah, so it's basically keep things on track, I think. Um, it is partly a... It is not a thing where I can tell anybody what to do. So nobody reports to me. I am paid full time by Red Hat for this job. So I do get to devote a lot of my energy to it. Um, And it's kind of, I work a lot on project strategy and trying to figure out, not necessarily setting my own ideas, although I have some vision for what Fedora should be. And I try to make sure that I can express that well. But I really, it's, um, Fedora is a community where we really, Oh, I spilled my water over myself. Awesome. Um, sorry, getting excited <laughs> with the gesture. Fedora is a community where we uh, really care about what people think and their input into the project. So it's not a top-down structure. So uh, I try to figure out what people are doing that is awesome and what they want to do and enable that and fit that into an overall strategic picture so that uh, it's not just a thousand different things going in different directions and never accomplishing anything, but things that kind of um, go go somewhere as a project altogether. So that's what I see as the biggest responsibility. Um, as part of that, there's a Fedora Council, which is our uh, overall leadership body. So I chair the council and help um, keep that on track. And then also as a you know, Red Hat employee, I help represent community interests inside of Red Hat and then help you know represent Red Hat to the Fedora community as well. Nice. So when you got this position, what were some of the things about the job that you loved right away? And what are some of the things you were like, I think we need to change this? So actually, I would say my predecessor, Robin, who is awesome, um, <laughs> set things up for me in a lot better way. So I kind of went in um, with some changes already on the table that were good. So previously, um, the the leadership was um, basically there's the project leader and there was a board, but the board was kind of a oversight role and not very involved in active governance. 
And so we set this up with the Fedora Council, which has people who are kind of, kind of sharing sharing the load of leadership. Right. And particularly, there is a community, um, we call it the Community Action and Impact Coordinator um, for for complicated reasons, uh, but basically an, another person whose job is kind of care and growth of the Fedora community specifically, um, it's Brian Exelbeard. Uh, and so he's kind of a, uh, kind of splits what the previous role had to carry all in one thing. And there's probably enough to do, we could probably split it another time into four more people and then mm -hmm. eight and 16 and so on. <laughs> uh, no, but um, there, there's a lot. Uh, so, so the project, uh, we started out um, with this structured a lot more uh, for my long-term success. So that's that's the reason that I've been in this role longer than anyone else. It's not necessarily that I'm super awesome, although I hope there's a little bit of that. There. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So what are some things that you'd like to change about the like the Fedora as, as, as project leader? Like if I had a magic wand to get yeah, changed. Yeah. You had thing. that easy button, you could just jam and boom, it's done. So um, I think some of the time, because we're a 10 year old project, some of the things have kind of built up a legacy that are hard to um, get away from. Um, our, our release engineering infrastructure is uh, such that basically when, when you make a change to a package, it takes you know a day and a half to get that change out to users, uh, which can be, if we're in an urgent situation, frustrating, or even if you're just doing development, that kind of turnaround is not very good, or, or basically our lead time for any changes is much, much longer than it should be. And that's a lot of, the, a lot of when we're deploying services and things in infrastructure. Um, so I would like to redo our infrastructure so that we could have a much shorter lead time so that if I you know, make a one line change to something i can get results of that back you know yeah at least within a couple hours so there's kind of infrastructure stuff that it would be nice to wave a wand at and have that done but it's a lot of work especially yeah. if we want to actually keep things going while we're doing it and there's also a lot of you know institutional knowledge that's kind of encoded in the reason that the process takes so long it's not doing it just for fun. There's stuff that's happening all along there. So right. rethinking how our uh, distribution pipeline works, I think would, would be nice. Um, th that's, that's one of the big areas. Another thing, um, I think we've had a hard time with marketing in Fedora because that's always been a volunteer driven thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I, this is something that I think I need a magic wand to fix. <laughs> um, if, if you're doing marketing in, in a corporate setting, um, you, and, and it's working well, you've got can have a really tight feedback loop between your marketing group and your engineering so that the, the marketing you know, sees market needs and engineering develops things to fix them and then you go out and so on. Yeah. But um, in a project like Fedora, um, like I said, we don't really have the development. We have, it's mostly integrators and the marketing is largely volunteers and people who don't have authority over the engineering and so there's some kind of chaos there. So I would, I would love it. Then again, this takes a magic wand, but with that magic wand, I would love it so that we could do a better job of solving real users needs. Cause that's what, um, as people from an engineering background, uh, marketing is sometimes a suspect uh, a discipline, right? Where you, you <laughs> yeah. think it's, you know, um, selling snake oil kind of thing, but when it's working right, it means we're seeing what, people in the world actually need and, you know, giving them solutions to their real problems. Uh, so I think you know, that's ultimately the mission of anything like Fedora is to help people solve their problems. And so I think with a 
better marketing um, engine, we could do that better. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's actually a good point also because there's there's a lot of people who have said uh, specifically uh, Noah from Ask Noah Show. Uh, he's a friend of the show and he's mentioned multiple times on his show about how Red Hat and Fedora makes a lot of cool things but they don't have they but there's a there's not enough marketing to kind of like to let people know what these cool things are and stuff like that. Yeah, so this is actually a secret plea. Um, like I said earlier, we don't necessarily need people <laughs> showing up with programming skills desperately. Although always any any help is always valuable. But uh, if you're if you have marketing skills and are interested in, in helping Fedora in this way, uh, talk to me after the show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you guys are always doing some exciting things and. When you install Fedora, it installs a bunch of different links like within the Firefox browser for Fedora magazine and other things where you can get updates on that stuff. And I think that's a great start. Also showing up on interviews and people getting to know oh, the yeah. folks in Fedora, I think is a big deal. So we're happy to have you here yeah. for that. But when I was at Southeast Linux Fest as well, you guys had a booth there for Fedora, which was really neat. I would love to see some things with, you know, showing uh, besides just having Fedora there on a computer, which is cool, and some CDs, and all, of course we want the stickers and stuff, but maybe showing some cool things that Fedora is doing as well to show people how powerful it is in all these projects that you have going on. But I love that you guys are thinking about that because it is, I think, a really important part that a lot of distros are trying to figure out right now is how do we get people to know about all this work we're doing and to talk about it and to build excitement around it. And a lot of times people find that excitement through outlets like podcasts, YouTube channels, those type of things, people doing videos on it and showing off that from their favorite personalities and they're seeing what's happening over there. That kind of creates that excitement. So yeah. yeah. And we do actually have a uh, Fedora podcast as well that Mm -hmm. our marketing team puts together and it's really awesome. Actually, I think if you don't, uh, We'll probably drop a link to that somewhere. In we will we'll put we'll it in, in, the, in the show notes. Yep. And uh, so speaking of uh, the interactions you had that Fedora has with uh, Red Hat, uh, what exactly is the involvement that Red Hat, uh, you said that you are, you're an employee of Red Hat and you're also the f- project lead for Fedora. How much involvement is there between Red Hat and Fedora? Uh, Red Hat is very deeply involved in Fedora. So it's, uh, you know, it is the upstream for RHEL, which is the, uh, underpinning of the company, although Red Hat has expanded beyond just RHEL to OpenShift and some other things now, uh, it still is, you know, it's kind of the foundation of the company. And so uh, Fedora is the foundation of the foundation, my metaphor. We'll take it. Yeah. Um, And so Red Hat invests quite a lot, um, both in community funding and then in just personnel. Uh, So there are... uh, Red Hat's something like 13,000 people, more than that maybe now. Um, and so most of those people do not work on Fedora, uh, but there's probably 30 or 40 people who work on Fedora, mostly full-time, and then hundreds who have some aspect of Fedora responsibility. So there's a lot of um, investment in Fedora in that way. Um, that said, not all of Fedora is Red Hat. So I did an analysis, and this I should I should do this again, but I looked at it a couple of years ago, and of the top 300 comp- contributors um, to some very specific technical things, so it's not, not the whole project, but um, of the core contributors, about a third of them were, were Red Hatters and two-thirds of them not. So it's a significant chunk, but it certainly isn't the entire community. 
Interesting. Interesting. So to kind of clear up the whole family lines, and I'm sure you've done this before, but we have RHEL, CentOS, and Fedora server options as well there. What are the use cases for having kind of three server distros in the same family? Yeah, uh, it is something that we are continually working, trying to figure figure out how to how to best best tell this story. Um, so it's kind of an ongoing thing. Um, certainly, uh, I think RHEL is the easiest one. Um, if you are an enterprise, there's no question like that's that's for you. Um, if you need something that has a ten year stability, if you need to have someone to call for support, if you need to have certifications, hardware certifications, government certification, like. Uh, I'll let the rel salespeople do do the pitch. That's, <laughs> that's pretty clear. Um, CentOS uh, fits in where there are places where um, you know we, we talked earlier about free being important. Not not everybody can afford rel. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of cases where the rel licensing makes it difficult. Um, if you want to if you want to hand out a demo of your software at conference uh, and you want to base it on rel. That, that doesn't work so well because um, you can't hand out the license of RHEL. There is a free developer subscription to RHEL, but it's fairly limited. So um, because of that, CentOS became very popular, um, salespeople or not. And so uh, Red Hat decided because of the, the, the success there, it would be better to bring that into the family than to leave it, leave it out in the cold. Um, right. So CentOS is kind of popular as um, a RHEL a RHEL-like operating system that, um, for a lot of purposes, you can can fit into places where RHEL um, it isn't really an option. I think that's the right thing, and I don't think anybody from sales is going to kill me for saying <laughs> that. Might, might glare at me a little bit. Um, so, uh, also some of the, some of the things that are uh, being developed on top of the operating system. So, um, we we used to call them layered products, but we don't anymore. Things like um, satellite and you know. OpenShift, OpenStack, other things that are not the operating system, um, and you know, third-party things that are being developed. Um, CentOS makes a uh, is a place where they can work on development of those things before they're a product, because Fedora uh, tends to move quickly, so it doesn't always make a target that matches what's going on in RHEL. So CentOS provides a place for that development. Uh, Fedora, on the other hand, is where we do this integration of all of these thousands of great upstream software things that come together and sort of uh, build, both integrate all the software as the change comes in, so help help Red Hat manage the change and help uh, users in general manage the change of all the newest stuff in open source. So if you follow Fedora server, you get a distribution that tends to, you know, we come out in a six month cycle. So we tend to have very new versions of everything, including new versions of the kernel, new system D, new glibc, new GCC on a very short cycle, which in some cases is more useful than a long lifetime. So if you wanna have the newest stuff, if you want to you know, develop against what may be a future version of RHEL, having the faster moving, thing is is interesting and then um also it gives a place where if you want to shape the future of what a server distribution looks like getting involved in fedora lets you do that because if uh you know if you want to shape what rel looks like um you can possibly if you are a you know fortune 10 company or whatever um ha- have some weight on on the company scales of this is what we need um and right it's responsive to customers, blah, 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 blah. But if you are, <laughs> um, if you are, you know, a university or you're uh, someone, 
who wants to, or even if you are one of those big companies, if you want to directly shape, like this is what I need in an operating system, Fedora is a place where you can participate and make that be the thing you need it to be. Right. Excellent. Uh, so that leads us nicely on to the to the next question because it, it mentions all three again. Um, and at a recent DevCon conference, uh, you were part of a panel discussing what Red Hat wants out of Fedora and CentOS. Um, and one of the, the points made was that Fedora is a community uh, project and that many of its enhancements have come out of that community engagement. So looking back over the years that you've been there, what were some of the notable projects that have spawned from the Fedora community? Yeah, so um, I think Yum is one of the big things. There's a whole story about that. Or, you know, Red Hat had their own system for updating, you know, Red Hat... Uh, and this might even predate RHEL. I don't remember the whole thing. <laughs> uh, and, and there was this community built thing that was objectively better, and that um, you know that that changed the shape of of how you know Red Hat Linux, uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux works. Um, that's obviously so. That's a, that's a, the thing that comes first to my mind. Seth Vidal wrote that, and that was um, a, a huge contribution. Um, I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to say System D. I don't know how how um, inflammatory that is on this podcast. Um, that was that was kind of, this kind of an interesting thing because although it's very associated with Red Hat, I mean that's really a project where the developer was very passionate about it, and you know, product management was not so yeah. sure that this is something that you know, uh, Rel, Rel needed. And so um, pr it was proved out in Fedora that this is something that actually you know. Uh, despite some initial pain provides a lot of advantages to us. Um, and so oh, yeah. it, it, that kind of thing grows in Fedora. Um, yeah. There's, there's so, a lot of people who don't necessarily like, are fans of system D, but I, I think system D is fantastic. And this having to deal with all the different init systems is, uh, was always a pain. And now it's just like, if I want to start something, it's just sys, uh, sys control start. Like, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, there's there's uh, so all software has its own you know, things because it's made by humans. So right. sure. there, there's things that are not perfect, but uh, I think it, Fedora um, did a good job of demonstrating you know how that how this how this can actually work. And it's one of those cases where you know it could have failed, um, and that would have been okay too. It's uh, um, important for you know somewhere like Fedora to be an experiment for those kind of things. Um, but that's really cool. Um, so. Uh, Fedora uses the GNOME desktop, desktop environment for its its core system for like the, the main offering for the desktop for Fedora, and but it also has several other spins that provide alternative desktop environments like KDE Plasma or XFCE. So, what's the relationship between the maintainers of the spins and the Fedora core team? Like, I know that there's a difference between like the the spins and then the community spins. Like, but could you go in more details about that? Yeah. So. Um we we made a pretty conscious decision to make all of those things part of actual Fedora rather than saying, you know, this is Fedora and then you can go off if you want and build a KDE thing or some other desktop. So uh, although we have basically um, this goes back to Fedora next where we tried to make these um, market focused additions where we wanted to say this is a you know, a desktop environment that we want to win software developers who are using their Macs at conferences back to Linux. Like that, that's basically the, the, the goal for Fedora workstation. And so we said, we said, okay, our resources for doing that, the, our best 
um, using GNOME Desktop because we're best resource to do that. Um, and so it wasn't basically, we're going to promote GNOME over everything else. Uh, so um, I, I actually, um, it would be, I think it would be a nicer story if we also had a, a pure Fedora GNOME spin, but we don't have the resources. No, no one actually showed up to actually do that um, <laughs> uh, because so is, um, Fedora Workstation isn't really necessarily meant to be like, this is just, our, this is our GNOME thing. It's meant to be, this is our, our uh, you know, our, our workstation for laptops solution. Right. Uh, and so uh, the other spins are uh, basically made by people who care about that desktop and want to make sure that's available to Fedora users. And so those are built you know, in the Fedora infrastructure as part of the Fedora community with Fedora resources and people who are working on it are Fedora contributors, just like everybody else. Okay, cool. Um, so which DE do you personally use on like a daily basis and why is it KDE Plasma? Yeah, it, it, it has never been KDE. I, I tried KDE back in, I don't know, a long time ago. It, it never, I don't know, never, never gelled for me. I was an XFCE user for a while. Yeah. But yes. yeah, um, and, oh, like, for you know, a while. Before, that, before that, I was a window maker user. So uh, <laughs> I, I've actually come around to GNOME a lot because of the engineering in it. And particularly, the uh, like we talked about photography before, the color management work in GNOME is amazing. Um, I have a color hug, which is an open source hardware uh, like color calibrator. Uh, yeah. I recommend searching for that. Uh, like, uh, and But color calibration and co color workflow uh, just work really well in GNOME. And I'm pretty sure they were the first desktop environment to get that right. Although probably someone will put a comment that it was actually, actually a different one, but <laughs> it's very good. And it was enough to make me switch over. Um, I was hesitant at first, um, but I've, I've come around, I've got a bunch of extensions that I've installed um, that I find important to shape it to the way, the way I like. Um, but overall it's basically just GNOME and I like that it gets out of my way and I hit the Windows key and search for something. It's uh, it's cool because it made the Windows key actually mean something. It shows all your windows, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and so yeah, I I like it because it gets out of my way and also has it does the stuff I want underneath. Well, I think Fedora. I you know, there's a whole story of why it's taken me so long to get to Fedora in my two year Linux journey. Because I actually did try it when I first started with Linux, but then never went back to it until much later, which is recently. Um, but besides that story, I think Fedora has the best GNOME implementation of any of the distros. It makes me actually like GNOME. And when I ask people, what does Fedora really do differently in there? They're like, well, they kind of leave it a lot of vanilla. They kind of leave it alone. And you can add the extensions and stuff in there, but it's a very close to vanilla implementation of it, whereas other distros seem to try to add a bunch of things to it, to me, that make it more obnoxious than Fedora's version of it. Yeah, I think uh, getting out of the way is really, like, I don't think you really should be very aware of your desktop environment most of the time. Um, I you said earlier, operating systems are boring, and hopefully that goes for uh, desktop environments in a good <laughs> way as well, right? Like, right. I don't, I don't really ever want it to if, if I become aware of it, it's probably doing its job wrong. And I think um, GNOME does a good job of that for me. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So talking about Fedora and the advantages that it has, when you think about it compared to other distros out there, why would someone you, what, what comes to mind? What are some of the advantages you would say Fedora has over another popular distro? Yeah, um, 
first of all, there are a lot of awesome distros that are cool. So, you yeah. know, no, no judgment on any of the other distros. Um, I, we have a really good community that is fun to be a part of. And uh, the engineering, as I said, is really good. Um, you're right. We've got a good relationship with GNOME Project and GNOME Team. So I think our, if you're looking for a desktop offering, I think that's really good. Um, if you're looking at the future, uh, we have CoreOS as part of Fedora now, Fedora CoreOS, um, as you know, Red Hat bought that company and um, is integrating Tectonic and the CoreOS like, product offering into OpenShift. And then nice. Fedora CoreOS is going to be the upstream project and maybe a little wider. Um, so if you're interested in Kubernetes and kind of the future of how to put together you know, server at scale things, uh, Fedora is a really interesting place to follow and be involved. And I think um, Fedora CoreOS is going to be a really cool offering that I think is unlike anything anybody else has. Is Fedora uh, Core going to be like kind of like merging the Fedora off offerings and the container Linux offerings into like the same, like one thing. Is that what yeah, the end goal right. is? Right. So Fedora Core OS is going to be kind of the best of Fedora Atomic host and container Linux. Um, the container, the, the team was kind of actually excited to have an opportunity to look at some of their early decisions and revisit them. Um, so there's going to be, uh, I think, I don't actually know all the details, and we're kind of looking at this for a Fedora 30 timeframe, so that'll be next spring. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that will probably, it'll probably keep the OS tree technology that um, nice. Atomic Host used, uh, but the provisioning stuff from CoreOS, and we kind of want, uh, Container Linux has this experience of operating system as a service, and I, referring back again, people want an operating system they don't have to worry about. And that's right. kind of the promise of CoreOS. Like, uh, we'll worry about the operating system for you. And it lets us do that. In a, in a, in a I know I know this is kind of silly, but as a long-term user of, of Linux and also a previous version, a user of Fedora Core, I'm fantastically, it's, it's awesome that they decided <laughs> to name it Fedora Core. Yeah, it, it's um, f fun times with that. <laughs> nice. So... Some have said in the past that Fedora is just a testing ground for Red Hat. So as the Fedora project lead, how do you respond to that? Angrily. Yeah. Well, <laughs> honestly, uh, it is often hard for people who want to do, do new things at Red Hat for me to get them to use them in Fedora. So I see the, in my job, I see the opposite problem. Um, because uh, doing things in Fedora often means that you need to work with the community. You need to make you convince people that the thing you're doing is is a good approach, that it won't cause disruption, and um, that you've got. And like I mentioned, we, you know, we've got some legacy systems. You got to you got to fit things into that. So um, I think for me, the risk is really that a lot of a lot of times um, as we move forward it's easier for Red Hat to try out new things without using Fedora for it. So that's more <laughs> of a risk to me because I think Fedora should be a place where um, people can you know, try new things, including Red Hat, and it should be a, uh, a, a rich place for experimentation of all kinds. And, and um, yeah, that's one of the values that it provides to Red Hat. So that's important. Uh, as I said earlier, there are uh, a you know, majority of community members who are not Red Hatters. So mm -hmm. uh, clearly they're not there just to be Red Hat guinea pigs. And, you know, I came to this not, I, I've been using Fedora and part of the Fedora community for much longer than I worked for Red Hat. And I wouldn't be passionate about it if it were just a Red Hat beta. 
Um, Red Hat actually does have betas for you know Red Hat Enterprise Linux. That's 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 the testing ground for that. Um, and uh, um, another uh, key point is, if it were just a beta or just a testing ground, it wouldn't actually serve its purpose very well because we, in order for it to really work, uh, it needs to have real users who are using yeah. the project for real mm -hmm. things. So. Uh, even when we're trying to test things, we make sure that we care about the users and their use cases and that, um, that you're able to actually you know, run your real stuff on Fedora uh, without it causing disruption to you. So this is, um, I have a pet peeve of when people say bleeding edge for Fedora because we really <laughs> strive to not be the bleeding edge, but be the leading edge where we, mm -hmm. we we're in the front. There's that marketing but, there. I like right. it. But we're not, we're, yeah, we're not getting, you know, blood all over you when we do things. That's <laughs> disgusting. We are, uh, but we are trying to be in the forefront, but we want to make sure we're, you know, integrating things that work, not just, um, not just experiments. Nice. So what there's something that, that, they just, that Fedora has done recently. That's really interesting. They've, you're one of the first, like, if not the first mainstream distro to decide to use Wayland as the default for the display server protocol for the future releases. What made you decide to use Wayland? Yeah, so and that, that was a desktop team decision, and Wayland's been something they've been working on for a long time in order to improve you know, the various things that Wayland improves. Um, a lot of people working on graphics and Linux have been convinced that uh, you know that x is really hard to work with going forward and kind of needed a clean slate oh yeah uh, and so that's where wayland came from um and so this is one of those things where we get to you know leading edge versus bleeding edge at some point you need to have people try it um and basically nobody was trying wayland there was some experimental stuff but when we had it as an option nobody would turn it on so we weren't getting enough feedback to actually make it uh Good. They, they didn't so want to be the people that, that first tested. Right. So we, we tried to set some criteria for, okay, we think this is good enough to be the default. And crucially, to set it up so that it falls back very easily and transparently to X when it's not working. Um, and so that people, you know, who, who for whatever reason have problems with it um, aren't, aren't left high and dry. So when that was working, we decided that it was... Um, it was the right place for leadership to make it be, be the, the default. It is an interesting decision. So now we can go back into my story of starting with Linux two years ago. And at one point as a new user, somebody said, I, I was trying Ubuntu out and somebody said, you should try Fedora. Now I'm brand new to Linux. I don't know the difference between a desktop environment and a distro. I don't know what Wayland is. I don't know yeah. what X is. I don't know what any of this stuff is. I know Windows and Arrow and that stuff, but that. So I someday have to learn. I have it. Yeah, someday I'll learn. I still have it. <laughs> um, but I have an NVIDIA computer. You know, all my computer, yeah. and my laptop are NVIDIA base. I install Fedora. I boot to a black screen with a blinking cursor. And that was the end of my Fedora trials. So it, it's interesting to me because I both applaud Fedora for doing this because Wayland is our future and the talent and the team behind it is amazing and I, I hope them the best. But I also think Fedora in a way really shot themselves in the foot because, by the way, I have a, you know, my YouTube channel is mostly new Linux yeah. people who followed me back then and they all give me the same thing. Like, Ryan, I tried your Fedora. I'm a black screen with a blinking cursor. Yeah. 
Are, are people still getting that today? That um, if it's if it's hardware supported by Niveau, you really should get a clean fallback. Um, and we'll, we can talk about that after the show too, if that's if that's not working. Because like I said, like the the goal was for that not to happen. Um, and well, it's, today it's a different story. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's possible, you know, you can always second guess these things. We may, maybe we're too aggressive in, in retrospect with that particular change. Uh, but that happens sometimes. Well, now I have an AMD GPU, the Vega 64. And let me tell you something, I could boot in anything. Yeah. I, <laughs> I have, you know, it's like, I wanted to buy a laptop with one and I was like, Oh, that's, that's not happening. Uh, so I, <laughs> I may be putting together a desktop computer for the first time in like, I don't even remember when just uh, because I am also interested in AMD for that. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And so, I mean, Wayland's come a long way since that time period, but it was interesting when I look back and now I love Fedora so much and I talk about it, but thinking back at that time that, man, it was two years before I'd ever even thought about coming back because that experience to a new person was like, yeah, Fedora's yeah. not for me. That, that initial yeah. experience is important. I, you know, I basically told you the same story about the distro I started with where the Red Hat CD, for whatever reason, didn't boot on my system, so I became a Slackware user. So yeah, those first impressions are very important, I agree. So on on that note, there is an automatic switcher that Ubuntu did in 17.10, not to bring up other distros necessarily, but they they did an automatic because they tried to do the similar kind of test, right, with 17.10. And it had an automatic switcher to accommodate that they said, oh, you have an NVIDIA card, we're going to just boot you into the X session. Was that ever come up in the discussion back then for the Wayland thing to try to yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. It's always it was supposed to happen always. So okay, some, something, gotcha. something went wrong on, on your system or maybe mm-hmm. some other systems. Um, it, it's that. definitely supposed to fall back transparently to X if your driver doesn't support it or any actually uh, a number of other problems should make it automatically fall back. Gotcha. So with Wayland and some of the notable problems that it has with um, NVIDIA, when do you think it will become the new standard in all distros? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that depends on NVIDIA because NVIDIA is so dominant in the video video card market. So um, I, I don't know. Um, and yeah, that's a future I'm not going to try and predict, I think. Um, <laughs> well, come on. We want you to put money on it. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, not that one. Yeah, I think this is his, uh, Matthew's first next. Yeah. Next. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's fair. okay. That's I, fair. Well, I've never said I could predict the future, so I feel okay about that next. <laughs> All right. So, well, we'll go ahead and talk about what the recent recent happen, the happening with the release of uh, Fedora twenty eight. Uh, you added some really interesting features. We want to talk about yeah. a couple of the, couple of these things. One of the things that you you y'all added was third party repositories being available through the GNOME software store. And just why did Fedora decide to make a third party repository like easier to implement and add for the this latest version? Yeah, so um, I, this this does come back to um, talking to our users and finding out what what they what they needed. And so, yeah, uh, NVIDIA drivers is a crucial one to light up people's hardware in a lot of cases. And as a free software person, I don't feel great about that. I wish we had um, other options. On the other hand, if you go to the store and all of the computers you can buy have NVIDIA drivers, NVIDIA cards, and um, you come back, and then and Fedora won't run. 
because we made it hard for this, like that, that's not, that's not helping. We're us. free yeah. and open source and you can't run it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and actually one of the things, there was a review by, I'm not going to reference the exact one, but you can probably find it where they were like, um, I, I love all the work Fedora's put into it. It's great. This is so nice and polished, but it's a horrible shame that they've gone and, it, you know, um, bastardized the distribution with this non-free software. I liked their pure stance. Oh, by the way, I run Ubuntu myself. Right? So, like that, that one drives me crazy. You know, the DOS geek channel, that's what you yeah. get out of that person yeah, right there. Right, yeah. there there's a, um, a standard people like to, people like Fedora to be an ideal. Um, and, you know, often we get people who are, you know, running the NVIDIA driver themselves that would like it to not, have it available which is just like i don't know it's an elitist kind of thing which i don't think is very very helpful um yeah. all that said we did go to uh some careful lengths to make sure it's clear that this isn't coming from fedora and mm -hmm. that it is not open source and that it would be better for you and the world if you had open source options uh and you know what some of your open source options are um but yeah, that, that came from, you know, when we talked to users, one of the biggest frustrations was getting NVIDIA drivers installed for their system, and we wanted to make that. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. well, even before you um, started to bring in these new features in Fedora 26, I had had problems for years, and then they, they finally seemed to be solved around about Fedora 26. So for me, 26, 27, and 28... Changed everything. Have, yeah, have been really, really good. Now, these third-party repositories are there any further plans to add a few more or do you think you've got enough covered now yeah i mean it, it's on a one-by-one -one basis so um i i think there probably are a possibilities for adding adding more things um i uh, i don't know the details offhand of any particular mm. things being planned um but it's, I, I watch this space because things are still moving. Yeah. And it yeah. isn't necessarily limited to proprietary software as well. There's other you know, third-party sources of open source software that, for whatever reasons, doesn't fit in Fedora very well. Or you know, Fedora can't possibly package up everything. So mm -hmm. we might look at other kind of partnerships there in the future as well. Let me tell you, I think you guys made the right decision here. Like I, I gave you some flack on the Wayland thing, at least back in the day, because it's avoided me. But here you guys did the right decision. When you go... And you're looking at other distros where you can click a button and have your NVIDIA drivers there. And then you go, but I want to be free and open source and nobody can run me. That's a bad business decision. It's just bad. And you want to get people into it. And new people don't know. They don't understand this stuff. They're not going to sit there in the terminal and write 20 commands to install and to graphics right. GPU. So yeah, not only are you basically ruining by not having that stuff, a situation in which a new user could use the, use the Linux and open source and learn about all these opportunities. It really kills it. I think for even advanced users, because even now, two years later, I still, by the way, don't want to sit there in a terminal and put in yeah, right. 10,000 commands to install my NVIDIA GPU. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two things there. First of all, yeah, not all advanced users want to be operating system hackers. In fact, most, most people don't. So mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely to that. Um, and oh wait, I've forgotten my second thing. But that, that was. But it was a good one. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was matters. probably better, better point. <laughs> but better it's first. actually a good point about the the advanced users thing because I've been using for Linux for almost twenty years now, and I I just don't want to do it. Like it's not about like whether you can or can't. It's just like I just don't want to. Like right. it's like it's mm -hmm. the 
the main oh. reason is like if pr- like pragmatic approach, but having the the fundamental focus being open source and free software is I think the best option. Yeah, yep. and I think this is the, I remember my second thing, which was simply that uh, if people run into barriers like that, their reaction isn't oh I'm going to jump over a bunch of hoops. <laughs> So that I can get this thing that I, I don't even like if someone doesn't know about the value of open source and free software, they're not going to jump over those hoops to get there. They'll just go, never mind. Whereas yep. if we make it easy for them to get an open source operating system onto their computer, mm-hmm. then we have an opportunity to show them what's good about it. And then, you know, maybe next time they will go out and intentionally buy a GPU that has open source support. Uh, thank you, AMD and Intel for, you know. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean that, yeah, that's absolutely. one of the. I'm totally going to switch to my mine to AMD as soon as possible. Team Red all the way. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I mean, and even for the advanced users, by you bringing in those third-party software stores, it saves me having to remember every single time which one of those 14 threads that I found was <laughs> the right method. Yeah. And now I just go straight to your software and go, Nvidia, thank you very much. Next, and it's great. Yeah. On on that note. Um, one of the other things we're working on is a new docs site for Fedora. So hopefully, I, I don't know if, um, I think installing the NVIDIA driver is actually even one of the things there. Nice. Uh, so I know uh, we've been jealous of the Arch wiki for years and years, as everybody, everybody <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and our wiki, um, as the Arch wiki nicely explains, has never served in the same purpose that the Arch wiki does. It's more like um, a, a workspace kind of thing. And it's, um, it was actually kind of a horrid mess of, I, I sat down with our UX people and we came up with like 25 different use cases that the wiki was serving. <laughs> um, and the problem with that, with that and also being documentation is the Arch wiki works because it's documentation. But ours was documentation, QA test matrices, people's drafts for things, basically people's personal pages, all these different things all scattered throughout and, and with varying levels of maintenance. So you might buy a, a you know, a, you might, Google might land you on a useful page in the wiki um, and it, and, but you're only one click away from like a nightmare of something from 2008 that is <laughs> awful, right? So, or, or you know, maybe that page that looks beautiful actually is from 2008, doesn't, isn't even relevant anymore and nobody's curated it. So. Uh, one of our solutions is we set up this docs.fedoraproject.org site, and the idea is to put all of the things that is curated documentation into that site and to kick out things from there that are not. Um, it's based on a, um, ASCII Doctor and is based uh, and has a like a, a Git-based um, PR workflow for it. Nice. And very soon will be automatically CI/CD to be deployed to the doc site when you make changes. That is awesome. such a great idea. As you know, as I've been playing with Fedora more and more, I look for articles using DuckDuckGo because we're a DuckDuckGo family oh, yeah. here. But uh, totally. no, you Google but things we, we with look, DuckDuckGo. Yeah, I got it. Right. But we look through that, and a lot of times it's like this is the solution from Fedora 14. I'm like, is that still relevant? Would I type this command still? <laughs> so you know, it is nice to have would have something. Like like that where it's really current talking about making things easier though flat packs and snaps have impacted the linux landscape i love them some people will go out there even when i talk about loving them on my channel and say i hate them they're too big or this or that but i think they're amazing and they make things easier how is that shaping the landscape or decisions you guys are making over there at fedora 
We actually just have an exciting milestone on that. Owen Taylor has been working on a project which takes Fedora packages and automatically builds flat packs out of them. Because one of the things, Fedora actually, our community does an excellent job of packaging up you know, open source graphical applications in, in latest versions into Fedora. So if you want to run Darktable or Inkscape or some of these things, like they're there in Fedora already. Uh, but right. Flatpak gives some advantages, even for people who are used to getting it from the distro. Uh, you can uh, update them without needing to worry about whether you know you need to reboot your system. Uh, they can be updated independently like that, and you could uh, roll back your updates in a way that we can't easily with RPM packages. Yeah. Um, one of the things I talked to our the software. Um, it's this is confusing software is you know the software updater app in gnome so i talked to the developers of that about what if you know could we have an opt-in to beta channel for this or could we have a roll that one didn't work roll back this one thing and a package-based distribution doesn't work very well for doing that whereas flat packs are separated enough so that works very well and then um, we're also working on a desktop that's called uh, Fedora Silver Blue. It's based on the same OS tree technology that CoreOS and Atomic Host are based on. Mm -hmm. And so that gives you basically an immutable system for your base operating system. And so Flatpak is a way to put applications on top of that because an operating system without, without um, applications <laughs> is less interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, it, but, it, it... yeah. But one of the things like um, right now, but um, if you go to like FlatHub, um, there's a whole bunch of collection of things that have been kind of packaged up by random people and mixes of proprietary software and free software, and it's kind of a mess. And so a lot of the value that a distribution provides is curation of the software and you know, making sure that it's updated and making sure that you have a you know, trusted source for it. When we build things in Fedora, they're all built with hardening flags on the compiler. Um, you don't have random, weirdly licensed things sitting around. So we're basically a, a pretty good source of trusted packages. So this is a very long explanation. I'm sorry. <laughs> the free. short of it no is problem. we're now going to be producing, you know, automatically converting Fedora applications into flat packs that will nice. be able to install on Fedora or on any other distribution that supports flat pack. You can just um, sort of add Fedora as a flat pack source and nice. then uh, have the options so of our package. Fedora's going to offer like a, a repo for the remotes for Flatpaks. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So is it going to be like trying to be like all the applications that are like currently like RPM in the repos to be kind of convert them to Flatpaks? I, I think probably the, you know, um, and again, um, that's that's basically the goal. All of the graphical desktop applications right. that are of high quality. So the kind of things you would see in GNOME software right now, because that's not every, not every package for sure. Nice. Um, the, the idea is to make those available that way. And then we actually also have some people um, from Canonical and from the community who are working on doing exactly the same thing with snaps in Fedora. So um, I, like I said earlier, I like to be, like to be inclusive. So, um, uh, and we definitely, you know, there are Red Hat and Fedora people working on Flatpak directly. So there's a little bit of that being the home team, but 
still, we want to have all, we want to try these things out and want to yeah. make sure that you know, these are available to users for everybody. I yeah. love them both. I mean, I don't care what anybody says. If, if it's in a snap, I'll use a snap. If it's a flat pack, I'll use a flat pack. It just, I use an install script that I have out there on GitHub that basically anytime I'm distro hopping, I have one for Fedora, I have one for Debian based distros, and it just goes in and bop. But it's so much easier to maintain with a snap and flat pack because I don't have to change the download links and everything else to get to certain software or whatnot if it's in a snap it's very simple it installs you're done it, you move on with your life because like you said getting the desktop the operating system out of your way and being able to just use the application that's what i care about i just want to use it and move on yeah i think actually yeah. flat packs could be you could say that fedora is is like the best time to use fedora now is was because of all this and this, this integration with all these different tools you have the ability to use like the fundamentals that make Fedora good, but also not have to worry about whether your applications get updated or not because you can just use flat packs and, and snaps and app images and everything's like that. Yep. Mm -hmm. no, that's excellent. Now, another uh, good feature that came out of uh, Fedora 28 for me was the, the streamlined inst uh, installation of the software or the, of the, uh, of the um, distro uh, using Anaconda. Um, you've, you've changed the way that it worked. It's, a, it's much more um, intuitive now. Um, and was that done to try and um, bring in newer users? Because for me, before 26, one of my biggest headaches was, oh, God, I've got to do that Fedora install, and I can never work out which is which. But now it just rolls off the tongue like all the others seem to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there was a pretty big UX project in Fedora 18 and 19 to redo the, the interface for Anaconda. Um, and, um, yeah, and... and a lot of that was based on research, but hadn't been exposed to, you know, millions of users. So as something gets exposed to millions of users, um, it gets refined, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think there's been, you know, ongoing attention to the things that were causing problems. And uh, yeah, uh, I, there ha wasn't any specific, like, change that I can think of, but I think just kind of continuous refinement of, you know, where we saw people having problems and trying to make that more smooth for people. Well, what I like what you guys did is in the it's only in the GNOME version so far that I've I've seen it. So it's not in the spins versions, but in the GNOME version, when you install it, it doesn't have you set up the user till after the install. And I figured this setup was very similar to why System76 and Pop! OS did it this way so that they could distribute, you know, you could distribute hardware as a manufacturer and not set up a user beforehand that then the user has to go and format the whole disk and to create a new user on, which I thought was a great uh, addition to the GNOME version. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I regret is that we didn't explain in that screen where there used to be a, um, a place to create a user um, because we did get some feedback from people. <laughs> hey, I don't know how to create a user anymore. And it's <laughs> Trust us. Just keep going. It's going to be okay. <laughs> It'll be there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, right. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one of the use cases. Uh, moving it moving it later helps that. And also, um, I think just uh, the team wanted... It actually... Um, before that happened, there was actually code where if you didn't create a user, that would come up. But um, you, you, it was uh, you know, not... Uh, you didn't get there because you'd create a user, right? right so right. it was already, it was way, it's waiting to happen. Um, and the, there's kind of a move to like simplifying the install and getting you to a running system faster. Yeah. Now. Mm -hmm. uh, um. yeah. Are there plans to streamline even further, such as the hard disk selection area? So you go into the installer, you click on your hard disk, 
And then that takes you to a new screen. You set that, you set your parameters, you do your formatting, and then you go back to the same screen. Anything's around. I mean, yeah. it's not like it's a big deal. Honestly, it's an easy installer. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. But are there ways that you guys are looking at streamlining even further? Um, I, I'm actually not sure about that in specific. I mean, that's, you know, partitioning is hard. And the Anaconda installer actually is one of like the disk partitioning software in there is a crazy sophisticated uh like it, it's it like you know, partition magic from back in, in the day, right? Um, the, the the things that it lets you do are way beyond what most software installers do. Like if you want to install Windows, I think your option is blow away disk, install Windows. Um, so it's very flexible and has a lot of options. And with flexibility comes complications. So it's a hard UI to get right. Yeah. And you guys have always had and the privacy options for your install, at least since I've been using it, the option for people to choose whether to have, you know, some of their data set upstream or not. And that's still part of the installer, right? It's, um, a, it's part of the, the OEM after the fact, like like that. The, the yeah. Secondary. Yes. After you've installed it. Right. right. That, yeah. Cra crash reports being sent back is yeah. an option. Yeah, I, I think I mean that, those kind of things. It's it's really cool that you're offering it, and you know, like upfront, like here's, would you like to participate in this thing? Kind of thing? Like, I I think with like more people should be sending that kind of information to the district. I always so that say we, yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. always yes. Just because, because I want you guys to be blown away by my system specs, but none of you <laughs> have ever emailed me about them. So yeah, and all that stuff is actually uh, the the interface to that the, the crash reports, like they get. Bugs automatically filed in our bug tracker, and then also they're aggregated into a thing called the retrace server, which is publicly available. So you can actually look and see like the trends for crashes in Fedora over nice. time. Um, uh, on a it's a I mean, retrace or project at our. That's really cool. I, when I said nice, I wasn't talking about the crashing, just the, the yeah, trends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, again, it's bugs. Software. Yeah, all, all software bugs. has bugs. That's just yeah. the nature of it. Yeah, I like the idea of having of like pre presenting it to people so that anybody can go and ch check it out. That's awesome. Um, so we've covered a lot of our favorite favorite features for Fedora and for Fedora 28. What are some of yours and the team's favorites? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of teams, so I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do team favorites. Um, I, could, I could tell you things that I'm excited about coming up. And um, I think, actually, uh, there's a lot of things that are going to be experimental in this Fedora 29 release and solidified in F30. So we're kind of going into that kind of cycle here. So uh, I'm going to have to put on my... Uh, I don't know, marketing hat to come up with some buzz for Fedora 29 that's more exciting than, well, just wait, Fedora 30 is going to be awesome. Uh, <laughs> so, but uh, so one of the things in Fedora 29 is um, this modularity feature that we've been working on is going to be enabled across the distro. And this is nice. a, a useful thing. And so this is one of the things we started looking at you know, way back with Fedora Next, where uh, one of the fundamental problems of operating systems is trying to get, uh, pe people want to have, some parts of it move very slowly and some parts of it move very quickly and no two people want those things to be the same. So everybody has different <laughs> opinions about what, what should be moving. With the stuff you care about, you want it to move fast or you're, do, you're developing, you want to get the latest version of everything and then you would like it to stay there, right? Uh, so we don't have a very good way as a distro of providing that to you. So flat packs and snaps kind of give one way of separating that layer and uh, you know containers let you let you isolate applications from each other, but um, we didn't have a source of Fedora packages of different versions to go into there. So modules lets you take, um, say, node version 6 and version 10, and you can choose which one of those things you want, and Fedora can provide both of those. 
and that module can actually uh, last for longer than the release of the distro. So one of the problems people following Fedora Server in particular have had is that you know Ruby will update to a new version faster than you're ready for, and so then because Fedora moves quickly and you update you know every year, and uh, you have to decide, oh, do I just not update and not get security <laughs> or do I update and break my app? So the idea is this will let us have more continuity between releases by having you know, versions of modules that, that last longer. So that's exciting. Um, and I hope we can do a lot more with that in the future releases. Uh, mm -hmm. We're gonna have a Fedora IoT edition. So that's gonna you know, run on Raspberry Pi and then also other 64-bit ARM boards, a little higher end stuff. Um, and so that's going to be kind of one of our one of our uh, marketing focuses as well as kind of bringing Fedora into that space. It, it took us a while because you know problems. One of the things we've always tried to do is make it so that um, just Fedora as it is runs on every bit of hardware. We don't have a specialized version of Fedora like at, at the core level for running on different hardware. So that made it running on the Pi a little bit slower than it would have uh, been nice for us to get there. Um, but we do ride on the Raspberry Pi 3 very nicely now. Uh, so an IoT edition for those kind of use cases is um, in the works. So I'm nice. excited about that. And then I mentioned earlier Fedora Core OS in uh, Fedora 30 timeframe is also a really exciting thing. Yeah. Nice. nice. So I'm, I noticed a, sorry, I noticed a bit of a theme here, or I seem to notice a bit of a theme here where You've added some extra repositories to make things easier for users. Um, you've brought in the flat packs and the, and the snaps. You've streamlined the um, installer. Because I've never really seen Fedora as a, uh, a newbie-friendly distro. Um, have you made deliberate efforts to make it easier to install? I mean, what do, you, do you consider it to be good for beginners? I always, I think it always has been good for beginners. I mean, some of the things where things move quickly have been hard, and I think historically we've had some rough patches where we've, you know, been a little too far on the bleeding side, and that's made it hard for beginners. Um, but our intent has always been that Fedora is an excellent distribution for people of all technical skill. Um, and yeah, so I think um, maybe we're doing a better job of realizing that intent um, mm -hmm. rather than necessarily being a new focus. Uh, I would definitely recommend Fedora to new users, no problem. Cool. Yeah, I think the only way, the only reason I would potentially hesitate there, not that it's not great for new beginners because it is, is still the Wayland situation because while you can default to X, even in Wayland in its current state, although it's gotten a million times better, and I know eventually this will be a funny discussion to look back on because Wayland will be it, but things like screen recording and gaming, for instance, and things that a normal beginner may want to try to do when they're trying out Linux to see how it compares, if they don't know to switch to the X login, they're going to be getting 30 frames per second on their brand new 1080 instead of 200 frames per second, and they're not going to be able to screen record. And that's where I still struggle to tell people... I, I consider it more like an intermediate. You have to at least know the, a little bit about Linux before you try it. Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, I think, uh, yeah, pr probably as 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 a podcaster here, you may be a little bit biased on the screen recording. I know that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. Common use case for some people, yeah. a little of a lot of people. That's that um, isn't such a big deal. 
Um, and I believe you know th there is progress on all of those things. So you're right. In in several years, uh, this conversation will be moved. But yeah, yeah, and in fact, you said progress. You're absolutely correct. They I think they got screen the screen recording tool to work. Yeah. OBS still doesn't, but they've gotten other ones to work. And there's there's, there's a custom kind of, specific Wayland has come even. so far. And believe me, I don't ever want to bash on the project because I think they do an amazing job. It's just, is it ready yet for mainstream? And that is the real, uh, that's the real question mark, right? Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Yeah, that, that's fair. And again, you know, the NVIDIA situation is hard to work with. So we'll, so we'll see. Yeah, exactly. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the EGL streams, they're sort of maybe kind of worrying about doing stuff now. So thanks, NVIDIA, I guess. Yeah. Think ish, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so let's talk about. Uh, you mentioned earlier about Silver Blue. So uh, Fedora Silver Blue is like the 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 atomic uh, like the the atomic workstation was kind of like renamed into this new structure for Silver Blue. Could you tell us the, the us and the in the audience like what what exactly is this uh, Silver Blue for, and who is the audience for it? Yeah. So. Um, Right now, it's kind of a technology project that doesn't, we, we haven't quite solidified the audience for it yet. But um, I think, uh, I'll come back to the audience thing. I'll talk about the technology first for that reason. So basically, uh, this technology was developed for Atomic Coast, and it's going to be used in Fedora Core OS. Uh, it's called OS Tree, or it's actually, the developer is going to give me an earful because I described <laughs> it. It was actually developed way before that as part of a continuous integration system for GNOME. But RPM OS tree is developed for, for this purpose. And basically what it does is it gives you a Git-like view of the binaries on your system. So your operating system is wow. tracking version control. Yeah. So that rather than um, applying updates package by package, you get a set of new files that are the commits, uh, you know, the changes for that update. And you can go forward and you can go back and you can switch branches. You can go from Devel to mainline and things back and forth uh, just by rebooting. And and so uh, that gives you a lot of power because it's a, especially you know if we're uh, I think in the like the system seventy six on the hardware case like that like mm -hmm. uh, where you want to minimize your tech support the possibility of a bad update breaking your system must, must be terrifying. So having a system like a thing like this that you can send out to your customers makes it so you can, if, if things go wrong, it can actually automatically boot back into the last known good state in a way. That's it's awesome. Yeah, it's an so awesome concept. Cool. Um, and it's heavily linked to containers and Flatpak because, because of it, this concept kind of gives you an image-based distribution. Um, there are ways to unlock it and make local changes, but you generally don't want to do that to get your application. So we're going to ship it with, I, I think the plan right now is actually for the default terminal icon um, to give you a pet container view. So basically rather than giving you a shell on the host, it'll be a, a different administrative console that gives you a shell on the host. The default will give you a shell in your own like play space that is uh, a Docker you know, OCI style container that you can just run, um, not Docker, we'll use Podman for it. Podman's the new hotness. Uh, <laughs> uh, basically that, that will run and you can use that as your workspace. And a kind of cool thing with that is you can have you know like a different workspace for different projects. So if you just want to install a bunch of software and see how that goes and not worry about messing up your system, you can mm -hmm. do that by working in containers. Uh, so I think that's pretty exciting. So I think it'll be pretty attractive to the developer audience and I think also the distro hoppers too. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the distro hoppers will like play with it for sure. Yeah, because you you try out all kinds of uh, stuff. You can you like mainly like this. If you want to like every time I want to install an application, it's like please don't break something. Please don't break something. Yeah. <laughs> right. So so this should help should help with that. Yeah, sounds fun. Um, I'll I'll have to keep an eye on it because I'm an avid distro hopper. Yeah. <laughs> but but let's get away from Fedora um, a, a little bit and then, and talk a bit more about you, Matthew. Um, you've gone out, you've bought your PC or you bought your laptop, and you've installed Fedora. What then are some of the must-have programs that you then go and install? Well, so first of all, I've got on, on my, my server system, I've got a tarball of like dot files and things that I've been <laughs> shipping around for like 20 years. First thing I do is I pull that down and unpack that in my home directory so my bash is all set up properly and everything. Nice. One of these days I'm going to switch to using Ansible or something for that. But right now I've got this um, ever-expanding tarball of my proper, <laughs> proper root setup. So that's the first thing I do. Um, then, yeah, I, I use raw therapy for um, photo stuff and uh, GIMP for photo editing, of course, um, Inkscape, uh, and then, you know, Firefox is my browser. I haven't not, yeah. I, I, yeah, you know, I, I, I care about open source and if you care about open source, don't use Chrome. Um, that's, that's my message. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You know who you need to say that to again is Zeb right there. Cause uh, Michael yeah. and I are team Firefox. Firefox. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the way to go. How, how um, long you been, how long you been on that team, Ryan? Shut up, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Team Firefox. <laughs> All right. You know, recent converts are controversial. No judgment. Um, yeah, and, and then a terminal window. Um, because I'm an old school sysadmin, I do a lot of my, like, I don't use a file manager at all. Ranger? Nah, you know, term, a terminal. Terminal is how term I manage my files. Um, I, so, um, so I, I just... I, I'm kind of curious, but you said earlier you use raw therapy. Have you tried Darktable as well? Yeah. Uh, so I, again, um, years, I have a very complicated photo management system all of my own. Um, <laughs> it's back to the random hacking. And so Darktable works great if you want the whole Lightroom style photo management thing. Um, mm -hmm. I find uh, raw therapy works better if you are kind of working on a directory of photos man rather than a, um, nice. a, a collection approach. I also, um, I like uh, Raw Therapy has a deconvolution sharpening, which is pretty cool. If you've missed focus on something a little bit, it can do a better <laughs> job than unsharp masks. So it's got some neat technology in there. Mm -hmm. Darktable is really great. They're both great software. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, Raw Therapy fits my, my needs a little bit more. Nice. I was just curious about like, if you're, your experience with it, because uh, my, my experience with both of them is very minimal, like, just playing with it. So I was, just, I was just curious about that. Yeah, I think probably if, if you don't have a gigantic collection of software, uh, like if, if you if you currently are managing your photos by like dumping them in a folder somewhere and don't have a system around that, Darktable yeah. is probably better <laughs> for adding photo management to your workflow, and you should probably do that. Yeah, I, I would. I always looked at Darktable as more of a like editing tool, not really a photo management thing. So uh, I, I definitely check that out because I need to. Some, yeah, do I've got something. Like Three thousand terabytes of kid photos and yeah. something to yeah. do with them. Uh, yeah. I, I am, I think, now three years behind in sorting my family. <laughs> pretty, pretty bad. At some point, I'm going to have to declare bankruptcy and be like, "Those three years did not happen." Please enjoy <laughs> the current your photos. Exactly. Love it. So, uh, speaking of like, you know, we, uh, I like to play with different applications, and we saw that you're a an avid gamer of Icebreaker. 
<laughs> right. This is a, so this is actually, I wrote this for my wife. Um, there's a game called Jez Ball, which came with, I think, Windows for Workgroups or something back in the day. It's a, it was one of the free games that came with Windows. And so when we switched over to Linux in the house back then, she was like, I can't live without this game. <laughs> So I uh, spent I wrote this over a couple of weeks. It was actually my one of my first big projects in C, and the code is horrific if you look at it. Um, but you can still download it. Um, I, I actually, you know, it's not even packaged up in Fedora because it was it's it's older than I was being me being involved in Fedora. Um, it was actually like uh, CNN had a top ten Linux games one time back then and this was one of them not wow. because it's great but because the state of linux gaming was so bad <laughs> but uh, it is it is yeah. a fun fun little game where you, you've got penguins on an iceberg and you've got to divide up the icebergs i, I changed the theme from the windows one to a uh, yeah, it, that sounds right up uh, Ryan's street because we know all about bad Linux games. I love those games. I yeah. love those type of games. I I need you to package it for Fedora, yeah. if not just for me to play with. Okay, I, I, I'll I'll look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've got nothing but time on your hands, right? right. It's like you know, it was written for like a version of SDL, the gaming library from like. 2000 so i don't know if it'll even still build but. <laughs> we'll figure it out together it'll be our team project so do you play any other games out there yeah i i, I wouldn't identify as a gamer but i've been definitely i um i love civilization uh i love stellaris stellaris is probably the one i've got the most hours in right now you know um, yeah it's a great uh, game yeah you heard uh, of and they keep, they keep improving it so that's addictive um sk city skylines um, that's a good one I kind of I kind of like all the paradox stuff. I recently played Pillars of Eternity, which is really not. Right. I, I I like Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so, but um, <laughs> those, those uh, games on my computer are not really my genre. Usually, I go for the Empire Civilization building kind of thing. But I've been enjoying that. That that's pretty good. Nice. I'm terrible at those games. I have City Skylines, and I have like yeah. some like some of the DLCs and stuff. And I think I've probably killed at least twenty towns. So. Oh man, yeah i i I got the latest the parks DLC and I'm pretty excited about it. I haven't actually got a chance to play with it, but apparently you can now not use roads at all. You before you needed to have roads to put your houses, even if you oh, wanted yeah. cars. So I can finally make like a bicycle utopia um, <laughs> that I. Bicycle utopia. Bicycles and like blimps is. The I love it. Uh, so, love it. Well, we should, play, you should totally uh, stream that if you when you do it. Yeah, yeah, really. We have a pretty active Telegram group, so you got to come hang out there sometime. But every once in a while, we jump in and we play a game called Ballistic Overkill, and we literally take over the servers with Linux people, which is awesome. And so, if you haven't checked that, I don't know if you're in first person shooters at all. You, you would love to play with you sometime and do so. Yeah, you no, know, I would last like two minutes in that. That's, oh, that's the same that's as Zeb. He's horrible too yeah. we're all pretty bad honestly uh it's just fun to see the whole server everyone starts who was on windows just starts falling off and everybody up soon uh everything linux related and we just take the whole server over it's a blast um do you specifically go out and hunt down the windows users oh, of course. Oh, yeah like, yeah, yeah if they if they're a windows user they're going down quick uh in fact it was funny because we had a windows user that sometimes likes to join our gaming sessions and one time he said something about Linux and we made the joke about kicking him out of the room. Michael actually did it. <laughs> yeah, then I made him. <laughs> but then we brought him back. It was a joke, but it was like, yeah. you know. Yeah. So we're, we're a little bit snobby over there. But yeah, we'll have to play with that sometime. Speaking of which, though, I've done videos on 
performance because I like to take the latest hardware I can afford anyways and test out distros to see how well they game. Fedora, you'll be happy to know, fares very, very well in frame per second battles against other distros. And I was just curious if you guys do anything besides being on, of course, a lot of times a later kernel uh, to improve the gaming performance. Um, yeah, so I think being on being on the later kernel and also um, latest GS, GCC is important for a lot of those things. Uh, so, so yeah, having the systems up to date is probably the main thing you're seeing. Um, we do have you know performance teams that look for regressions and try and make sure that that doesn't happen. But um, most of what you're really seeing is you know, c- candidly, it's the benefit of upstream work. Nice. Mm-hmm. So moving slightly away from Fedora, but still based upon it loosely, um, what are some of the other distros that you admire? Um, and do you go peeking around other distros to get ideas for Fedora? I, you know, um, I, I have, I've installed other distros. I've never actually for a long time run a different distro. I've, I'm, t- I'm too busy, too busy for playing. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely admire the docs focus that Arch has. And I think um, they have a nice thing with a nice small, uh, thing uh, for desktop distros, uh, you know, I think the uh, Solus is pretty cool. I just kind of the focus yeah. on that, that experiment. I think that's pretty neat. Um, and uh, so th- those are some that I, that I think are good. Um, Susa, like, uh, I don't think I would want to run Tumbleweed, but I admire the, what they're doing with the engineering there. There's very smart yeah. people working on it there, so yeah. that, that's pretty cool. Um, I'm going to, you know, and um, obviously Debian for the really important free software community and culture that they have is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly leaving people out. There's a whole ecosystem. We of, love them all, right? So, yeah, I really do. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's valuable uh, and yeah. cool that we have all the different distributions. Uh, yeah, especially uh, everybody's trying new things. It's, you know, something's bound to work for every facility. So you can just adopt those things whenever you feel like, because you can just kind of dabble around and feel like, oh, that's a good one. And just take that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like I said, like, you know, we're using um, the OpenQA project from SUSE as yep. part of Fedora's automated testing. So there's a lot of things we get of sharing back and forth. Mm-hmm. That's, it's actually one of the things I want to talk about is, is the, the collaborations that you're doing with other developers and distros. Um, the space, like the Kobe QA is a great example, uh, but there are, are there other things that uh, Fedora does with other distros that are like, you know, collaborative effort type stuff? Uh, it's, you know, one of the things that it's hard to collaborate because it takes a lot of in- energy to do your own things. Yeah, so collaboration, totally. you know, although we all know it has longer term benefits, like the effort, the bar to do it is higher. So yeah. it's not quite as much as I would like on some of these things. A lot of times we collaborate by working on upstream projects together. Um, that said, um, you know, the um, uh, Canonical funded somebody to come to a Fedora conference to uh, work on snaps. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and snaps and flat packs have been doing a lot of in collaboration as well. And we actually, there was a performance hack fest, a GNOME performance hack fest where we sent people, um, a lot of different distributors sent people to work together on that. So I think that was a good example of cooperation. So how much do you utilize the open QA system? Cause I'm, I'm a big fan of that. The the engineering that, that SUSE has behind things like that is just, I'm just curious, like uh, when, when I first heard about Fedora adopting it, I, I was super excited because that's like one, like a fantastic QA system. I'm just curious, like how, how deeply is it integrated? Uh, a lot, a lot and very heavily. So yeah, it, um, nice. it, it basically every, every time we do a compose, it goes through a whole battery of tests, all of our release artifacts go, and a lot of them 
a lot of the non-release optional artifacts all go through a huge battery of tests. Awesome. Yep. So if you personally could collaborate with any developer, company, individual, being that you've been around Linux, you're, you know, the work you're doing with Fedora, you've met some pretty cool people and heard of some of the work they're doing, who would you want, who would be your dream to kind of collaborate with? All right, I'm not going to say pass, but I'm going to say come back. Let's come back to the. Okay, deal. We'll come back. No problems. So let's move on to the next question then. Um, has Fedora ever considered, or Fedora and part of Red Hat ever considered trying anything on a mobile platform? Please, somebody fix our mobile situation. Yeah, so I, I can't talk about whatever Red Hat um, product you know thoughts are there, but um, from Fedora point of view, like this is really hard. Uh, if you look at the space, and Microsoft failed to get traction in this mm -hmm. space with um, ungodly resources thrown into it. Mm. Uh, it is very hard for if this to be something that's more than a you know, duopoly, or may, maybe there's room for a small niche third three, third player. But uh, you've got to make these deals with hardware vendors. Mm -hmm. You've got to do all these kind of things that are um, really big investments and commitments, and the chances of succeeding against these juggernauts is so small mm -hmm. uh, that it's... Um, I don't think it's something we can afford to do. It's it, it's kind of a sad state of things, but it's it's um, it's not really something we can take on very easily. Yeah, um, it is a massive task. It's and, just it, it is, and it's really the players. If you look at the, I've been in telecom for eighteen years. If you watch who won, it's the one with the most apps, the one who created the dependency on on apps. And Microsoft came in there just with this wild, wild west system and people were writing apps. Most of it was like malware and, yeah. and pirating junk and everything. And, and there was just no quality control there. Whereas Apple, in their case, created a very kind of walled in garden and Android again is wild, wild west full of bugs and security and privacy issues. It just stinks because so many Linux people I meet talk about using Android and to me, it's like, wait, you, so you left Windows for privacy and security issues, but you're on Android for privacy, just give all your information. Yeah. So it, it's, it's an interesting world we live in because on one side, we don't like this invasive thing and we're moved to free and open source for it. On the other side, on our mobile operating systems, we're using something that completely goes against all of those ideals that we have and but i totally get it i mean how do you tackle something that uh, billions and billions of dollars from many companies couldn't tackle i mean we've got palm tried it with blackberry with their own os you've got all of them yeah. yeah i'm so i'm so sad palm lost I'm so sad yeah, yeah. um but yeah, it's uh, yeah it's just, i just don't think it's a thing we can win uh, and we've got enough to focus on so there you go that's a good point Fair enough. Once we got Fedora on everybody's laptop, then, then we'll we'll see what we're going to tackle that. All right, deal. So, I'm going to work yeah. on the other one first. So, so tackling something that's more practical, the year of the Linux desktop. So uh, what do you think that like, – it's a mystical term that people kind of yeah. – like if, it's becoming kind of a joke. Well, becoming. It's become it's a, a joke. joke for a decade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what do you think that's po what needs to be happened for this to finally come to pass? Or um, could you would you argue like maybe that if you count Chrome OS that it already has or well yeah so I think um, I think things like Chrome OS I think probably there'll always be a Windows like Windows but um, 
I, Microsoft's been you know, testing the waters for a more Chrome OS like Windows experience for people mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. It's true. And, and I think that so people on this call are you know are, are not going to relate, but but you'll know it's true. Most people don't want a computer. That they want is to do the things that a computer lets them do. And a computer is a horrible inconvenience that us geeks have made them put up with <laughs> in order to get the things they want to do done. And that's one of the reasons a lot of people are moving, you know, to phones and things like that. Like my mom uh, doesn't ever use her. She has a computer in the basement that she never uses anymore because she has, she basically just does everything from her phone. It's easier for her. Um, mm -hmm. And I, uh, I think that people are the mass market that is currently served by computers is probably a mass market that will be served at some point by much more lockdown devices, mm -hmm. um, which for better, or for worse, there it is. Uh, but I think there will always still be a market for the rest of us who are interested in having a computer as a general purpose computer um, for creating content, for uh, tinkering with, for making new things. Um, and, you know, maybe just because we like it. So there's always going to be that uh, segment. And I think it's always going to be a pretty large segment in absolute terms, even if in relative terms, it won't be mass market. It may be, you know, to the point where um, we're no longer getting $1,000 laptops. We may be back to, you remember laptops used to cost $4,000? Like mm -hmm. We may be back to that at some point as it becomes a less of a mass market thing. So that sounds like bad news, but I think the good news is that of that audience, a much higher percentage is going to be happy Linux users, and uh, the big players, you know, Apple and Microsoft, they'll they'll want some of that for the developer market share, but they don't care so much about that as the mass market either. So there's a lot, there's going to be a lot less fraught competition and a lot more uh, a lot more interest in Linux. So I think um, Linux can and not Chrome OS, but you know, a real Linux desktop distribution can be the dominant OS in that world. And I think we'll probably get there at some point. I said it earlier, I didn't predict the future, but here <laughs> anyway, we got so. you to finally do it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think that that's, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely not going to put a year on this because that'll absolutely be wrong. <laughs> um, but, but I think that there that's is definitely, there's growth potential in, um, in the market because of that. Yeah. Agreed. So, Let's uh, we're going to let you off the hook here. Just two more questions. What first one is what can we look forward to with Fedora in the near future? Yeah. So, uh, again, I think um, these these um, uh, immutable OS things, you know, core OS and silver blue are some of the interesting things coming up. Um, modularity is an interesting thing that yes. is um, lets us have some fast and slow streams. Um, one of the things we talked about at our conference last time, I talked um, the CentOS uh, engineering lead, uh, Jim Perrin, and I uh, talked about uh, putting the CentOS sources in Fedora as diskit and uh, having a CentOS right. and a Fedora view onto the same thing. So I think more collaboration with CentOS is is in the future. Um, I think, uh, yeah, more, more project growth um, and uh, good, good things. How about that? Nice. I mean, that, that's that's always you know good things are always looking forward to. So I I like the I can't wait to try out the silver blue thing because that just that concept itself is just awesome. So yeah, um, and it's available. There are demo versions of it available to try now, even though oh. it's not going to be one of our official things. So nice. yeah, um, 
I think it's silverblue.fedoraproject.org. If there's not very we'll link things, it. you'll find it with silver blue, which is um, one of the reasons we have that name. Um, <laughs> names that are distinct are, are mostly taken, but that, that should get you there. All right, cool. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, yeah. So before we get to, to Michael's last question, um, okay. the countdown music has finished and we've gone to do, 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 do. So who were those people you fancied working with? Oh, yeah. No, I actually put that question off to nowhere. <laughs> I put that question uh, off to nowhere. Yeah, but right. you never said next. Yeah. Right, I did never say. I want to work with that guy, Ryan, from Destination Linux. <laughs> Matthew, thank you, man. <laughs> that great. That was a, that's, that's a good pandering one. Yeah. Wow. You know, I have some amazing coworkers at Red Hat, so I'm trying to avoid saying the people I already work with, but um, that, 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 that might be my cop You know what? Go answer. with it. I think that... I think that is you know, some people that are um, not not just um, not my, my immediate coworkers and people I work with on the Fedora team are amazing and there's some incredibly smart talented people there. But um, if people at Red Hat like Stephen Tweedy, you know, wrote file system for Linux, you, people who have been uh, kernel developers forever and Linux developers, Linux uh, p- you, uh, those people um, worked at my company, and that's kind of amazing. So it's yeah, to work with them on things. So that's awesome. That's a pinch yourself moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of crazy when you like when you when you're asked like who do you want to work with, and you're like, well, I mean, I work with a ton of people who are already I, doing I'm amazing doing things. Yeah, <laughs> right. that, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. I, I can even pretend that's a good answer now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that makes Nailed, me- it. Nailed it. <laughs> so. The final question: We were just curious, since you you worked at Harvard, Howard, we we're just did you get the secret handshake to get into the like the the under the underground layers of the Harvard? No, no, I did not. <laughs> Staff does not get the secret handshake. Uh, you know what? He looked up in the corner when he said no, though. I think yeah, he knows it, and he's not allowed to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> that could be it. No, I, I do know a lot of things. I was trying to choose my words carefully, for sure. <laughs> Harvard is an interesting place. <laughs> Very cool. So, so uh, just want to thank you, uh, Matthew, for coming onto the show and all the things yes. you've done for the Linux community now and in the future. And uh, just, just want to thank you for you yeah. know, take, taking the time. Thanks. This was fun. I'll be happy to do it again sometime. Awesome. Yep. This is, this we is will take you up pin- on that for sure. This is my pinch myself moment because we've been wanting this interview to happen and it's finally here. A whole episode on Fedora. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it and stay so long and answer so many questions. Yeah. I got a little excited on the questions. I couldn't. <laughs> awesome. I had a good time. Thank you again. Awesome. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us, for watching, listening to Destination Linux. Zeb, how can they get a hold of us if they have questions? Well, yep. Remember, you can get back to us and let us know what you think or ask any burning questions via numerous methods. Um, Email comments at destinationlinux.org. We've got a Telegram group. We've got Discord. We've got Google+. And if you go to our website, destinationlinux.org forward slash contact um you'll see a raft of other ways that you can let us know how we're doing but please keep those comments and questions coming um and if you've got any questions for matthew we'll try and answer them from what we know or if they're really technical or really tricky we'll definitely send them on to matthew for yeah you. feel free to contact me directly you can find me matt dm at uh 
pretty much everywhere. Um, I was saying earlier, I prefer Matthew as a name, but I've handicapped myself with that by, <laughs> by choosing MacDM as a shorter, shorter name. So th there's that. Um, Although if they are deeply technical, I'm probably not the right person. <laughs> <laughs> you could just board them onto one of those really smart people. Support, there's yeah, um, you know, Ask Fedora or Stack Exchange, <laughs> maybe maybe the place for the tech support. But if you've got questions about the project, community, those kind of things, um, hit me up on Twitter or wherever. Fantastic. So uh, thanks for watching, and uh, be sure to like that smash button. And if you enjoyed the, the show and you're, you enjoyed for, you want to get some more interviews, feel free to make some suggestions. And if you'd like to experience the show and even watch the interviews like this live, you can become a patron by going to destinationlinux.org slash Patreon. And thanks again for watching. Everybody have a great week. And remember, the adventure itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Destination Linux podcast. 